Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Angela, it's good to see you. All right, guys. Thanks so much for being here this morning. My name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't a chance to meet you yet, um, that's who I am. So glad that we could be here together today. And sometimes it's helpful just to think for a second, like, what are we doing here? Like, why are we here on a Sunday morning? Like, why, why do we begin this week this way? And let me just say as a little bit of a reminder, or perhaps it could be a little informative to some of us, like, the reason we're here is to begin our week worshiping God. And I love what my, I love what a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine says or calls Sunday mornings. He says, Sunday mornings is, is when we enter into the grand dialogue. It's when we together as, as a group of people, uh, raise our voices to praise and in prayer to God. And we incline together, we together, we incline our ears to God as we anticipate hearing from Him and His Word. And so this, this grand dialogue that takes place on Sunday mornings is really helpful because throughout our week, we can easily just drift away from the reality that God is real. Like that there really is a God and that He really does care about us and He really does love us. And then he really did send his son into the world. And like this Christmas season, like we're going to spend our Sundays remembering that, that God actually sent Jesus. And that God the Son came to our world today. And like we need to be reminded of that. And it's so healthy. It's so helpful for us to begin our weeks together with a group of people that would say, okay, I, I believe this. And I need to remember that I believe this because it's true. And God really does, is real. And that he really does hear us. And we're going to praise him because he's worthy of our praise. And we want to live for him all week long. So we need to be grounded in his reality and who he is. And we're going to incline our ears to hear from him. And hopefully he will speak to us this morning through his word. And so we're going to start a new series uh, this Sunday in light of Christmas that we're calling Jesus, Our Hope. Jesus, Our Hope. And in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a few Christmas stories that we don't often associate with Christmas. But the gospel writer, Matthew, did associate with the coming of Christ. And so we're going to look at these stories and we're going to see how in each story, uh, how Jesus truly is our hope. And so I'm really looking forward to uh, this series. Before we get into it, though, let me just give us a, a, a definition for hope. Because biblical hope is a rich theological concept and is way different than our English understanding or usage of the word hope. Because in our English language, hope really just means something that we kind of wish for, something that there have, we have no certainty about. We just, it's kind of wishful thinking when we say, well, I hope that happens, right? But in the, in the Bible, the word, when it uses the word hope in the Hebrew or in the Greek, is completely different. In fact, I just put the definition up here for us to see. But it, hope is life-shaping certainty about things unseen. It's like future things or, or things about that we haven't received yet, but we've promised to receive. Hope is in the Bible is really grounded in the person and the promises of God. And so that's because our hope is founded in God who does not lie and who does not change. Then our hope isn't wishful thinking. Biblical hope isn't just something you hope will happen. It's actually life-shaping certainty about things that you have not received yet or things that you have not seen. And so when we in this series are talking about how Jesus is our hope, I want you to keep that in mind, that this is not just wishful thinking. We just hope that Jesus, these things are true of him, and it means these things for us. But that actually these things are things that we can bank on, that we can know with absolute certainty. And that's helpful because we're people we're, we're, that, um, uh, are, that are hope 
based creatures, if you will. I wrote here that hope changes how we live, how we see things, how we interpret circumstances and events in our lives. It's a silly illustration, but maybe just kind of really starting this series off, trying to ground us in what we think about with hope. Like if you told two people, you gave two, hired two people to do the same job, you put them in two different rooms, you gave them the exact same job to do, screw part A onto part B. You say, you do this for an entire year. At the end of the year, one person, you tell that he's going to be paid a billion dollars. And the second person, you tell that he's going to get paid $10,000. Neither of them has received that money yet. But if they have this life-shaping certainty of what's going to come, does that not completely change their attitude and their action for that entire year? Absolutely. We're we're hope-based creatures. What we hope changes how we see things, how we act, changes our attitude. And so this series, we're going to talk about the hope that we have in Christ and my hope, and in this sense, maybe my wishful thinking, but also in my certainty of what Christ can do in our hearts, is that it would change our lives. It would change our perspectives. It would change how we see things, change our attitudes as we head into Christmas and beyond Christmas. So Jesus, our hope. Now, what we're going to do this uh, series is we're going to look at one of the gospel accounts of Christ's coming, but not the one that we most often look at and the one that was most well-known, the one that uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas made famous, the Luke account, right? In Luke's account, you have, of course, you have uh, May, uh, angel visiting Mary, you have no room in the inn, you have the shepherds, you have all, all of that stuff. But Matthew's account is the one that we're going to look at today. And it's interesting to note that out of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of them begin with the coming of Christ or his, his birth. Just Matthew and, and Luke. Uh, Matthew begins completely different. He begins than Luke does. He be, Matthew begins with a uh, genealogy, which is probably why we don't give a lot of time to his account because genealogies are not all that interesting. Unless you begin to really like dive into it, and it turns out it's fascinating. And so that's what we're going to do in this series, and we're going to see what kind of hope we have by uh, through the stories of who Christ actually uh, was a descendant of. And so um, let me see where I want to begin here. Okay. Um, okay. This is this is going to be an interesting Sunday because this is not like the most common. Christmas of messages. Like I've actually joked with a couple of people, like I think it's pretty hilarious that we're going to begin our very first Christmas series as a church is going to be the story that we're going to look at today. And you'll, you'll know why by the end of this message, like, okay, that, that, yeah, that was different to kick off Christmas series with that. But it, it all comes to play with who is in Jesus's genealogy or the genealogy that Matthew begins with. And the reason that Matthew begins with a genealogy is because Matthew was writing the book of Matthew to a Jewish audience. And he wanted his Jewish audience to know that the Messiah had come. And he's about to lay out the life of Christ and, and his teachings and then his, the death and the resurrection. And so he really wants to know from the, wants his audience to know from the onset that Jesus is the Messiah. Now his audience, his Jewish audience, they would have understood that the promised Messiah, two things absolutely had to be true of him. He had to be a descendant of Abraham. And he had to be a descendant of King David. These were two very clear promises in the Old Testament. And so, so that's why Matthew begins with this genealogy to show that, yes, Jesus indeed is a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. But in showing that, you'll see that Matthew also gets a little bit, what it appears to be, he gets a little bit off point. 
he, he spends a little bit of time on some other characters in the genealogy that you wonder, why in the world would you pause there? Why would you give a little bit more attention to these people? Because the people that he pauses on are huge sinners. <laughs> They're not holy people. They're not the people that you would expect to be in the line of Jesus. And if you're trying to prove to a group of people that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the son of God, then you would want to brush over those people. <laughs> you would want to highlight the, 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 the key players like Abraham and, and so forth. But he, Matthew does the opposite. He, he actually pauses and gives more attention to some of the, the crazier characters. The more, and as you'll see in a second, like the creepy <laughs> characters in Jesus's family line. And he's like, why do that? Why would he do that? Well, only if those people actually illustrate the point of Jesus's coming, would it make sense for Matthew to actually pause on those characters? And it's all like in, in lieu of helping us understand why Matthew does this, it's helpful to remember that like Matthew was a tax collector and in that day and age, that was like one of the worst occupations you could have because it basically meant that he was a traitor to his own people. And so he was seen as an as a outright like, uh, you know, traitor and sinner and, and ostracized from his people. And Matthew himself, he would say he had no hope of ever being accepted by God because of what he's chosen to do with his life. And that the common message in his day and age and in our day and age is that when it comes to religion, when it comes to how we can be accepted by God, the common message for Matthew and for us is this. It's based on what we do. God accepts us based on what we do for him. What we do, what we don't do, what we promise we will do. And if we just follow through just right, then perhaps God will accept us. And so our platform, our standing that we put weight in for God to accept us is based on what we do. Our own self-righteousness. That was the teaching of the Pharisees of that day, the religious leaders of that day. And Matthew had seen Jesus just rail against that. That Jesus' message was completely different from that. And Matthew loved that. Because Matthew, according to the Pharisees' message, the common message of that, he had no hope. He had no hope of ever being accepted by God because he was a tax collector. But when Jesus shows up on the scene with Jesus' message, now Matthew has hope because this is Jesus' message in a nutshell. You're accepted by God, not by what you do, but what I have done for you. And that is a completely different message, a completely different worldview. And so Matthew, in writing the gospel, the gospel account of Jesus' life, he starts off right from the beginning and he says, look, I want to draw attention not just to the fact that the Messiah has come, not just the fact that who Jesus is, but also to draw attention to the fact that who Jesus has come for, why Jesus has come, and that God himself has drawn near to those who were never near to him. And that it's not based on what we do for us to be accepted and even we'll see, used by God, but that it's actually all on God's grace based on what he has done for us. And so Matthew begins his gospel account with this. If you want to follow along, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. So right from the get-go, guys, you know, Jesus descended of Abraham, descendant of, of King David. But he goes on, he says, he starts walking through from Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez is there by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. I'm going to stop there. Okay, you see that this is amazing reading, right? Wow, you just read a bunch of people's names. This is incredible. No, but when you think, when you look at it, you think, what, what, where does he pause? Abraham was the father of Isaac. Okay, Isaac, the father of Jacob. Got a little rhythm here. Jacob, the father of Judah, uh huh, and his brothers. Well, what's up with that statement? Like, why not just keep moving? And Judah, and then Judah was the father of, but he, he makes this pause. Judah and his brothers. Now, for us, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, or even if you just read it like I do, you just read past that. You just keep going. Like, let me just get through the genealogy to, to the good stuff. But his original readers, his Jewish audience, like when they read that and they saw Matthew draw attention to Judah and his brothers, they would have paused for a second. Because here's what they would have known, and known really well, that Judah had 12 brothers, or 11 other brothers, that Jacob, their father, had 12 sons, and that these 12 sons were key players in the story of God and what he did with Israel. And like They ended up becoming the, the 12 tribes of Israel, if you're familiar with that. But, in the, in, uh, but there was one brother amongst the 12 that was super famous. Many of you all know who that is. It's, it's the brother Joseph. Right, and maybe when you hear Judah's name, I don't know if you could like think of anything to t- talk about in regards to Judah. But probably, even if you haven't grown up in church, you probably know something about Joseph. Maybe you saw a play about his many colors, his robe of many colors. Right, like you know something about him. He's the famous one. Joseph is the one that is probably the most Christ-like character in the entire Old Testament. Probably the, the entire Bible. Like he's a guy known for his integrity, for his honesty, for this incredible forgiveness that he gives to people who really horrendously did him wrong. And that he and his faith end up being in a position where he's referred to later as a savior of many. That he actually is a savior. Like he saved, God uses him to save many people. Like he's the most Christ-like character in the entire Old Testament. And his original readers of Matthew... Matthew's writing to, when they saw that Jesus came from the line of Judah, and they were reminded, Judah, oh yeah, he had those brothers. They would have thought, they would have thought something. They would have thought, well, that doesn't make sense. Because like, if, if God accepts us based on what we do, God uses us based on what we do, then why did God choose Joseph. Why didn't he choose Joseph? Why in the world would he have chosen Judah? And that's especially drawn out when you know a little bit more about Judah. Like Judah in chapter 37 of Genesis is where we were first introduced to him. And we're introduced to him in this really like horrible scene where Joseph is coming to visit his brothers. And his brothers see Joseph coming and they begin to scheme. And they think, hey, we hate this guy. Our father loves him more than any of us. He's given him this incredible robe, which that doesn't really do it for me. But for them, like, I'm going to kill him for that. And so they, they're like, they, they're approaching. So they're like, man, like, let's kill our brother. And there's one brother that disagrees, Reuben, and says, well, no, let's not kill him. So they decide, okay, okay, let's not kill him yet. Let's, let's, let's throw him in a well. And so they find like an empty well, empty cistern, and they throw him in this, in this well. And then they like begin to try to decide what to do with him over lunch. 
Like read it in chapter 37. It's like, it's like, what? Like you, your brother is in a well and you're like, hey, let's, uh, I'm a little hungry. Let's, let's eat and let's talk about what, and as they're talking, then you see Judah, actually his first line in scripture. This is what Judah says. This is Genesis chapter 37, 26, 27. I think I have it up here too. It says, um, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Not that would be wrong to kill him. (laughs) No, we'd have to cover it up. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, own flesh and blood. A little blip of mercy there. I mean, go on. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. That's Judah. This is Judah, the one whom our Savior comes through. Like, well, in, let me introduce you. Hi, Judah. You just, say, you just sold your brother into slavery. This is a really amazing guy. All right, so... That's what happens. They do. They, they sell him to the Ishmaelites to take him to Egypt, take Joseph to Egypt. And chapter 37 ends that way. Joseph is on his way to Egypt. And you want to like, keep reading because you're like, well, what happens to Joseph? The very next chapter isn't about Joseph, though. It's kind of interesting. It's like, well, what happens to Joseph? The next chapter is all about Judah. So Judah gets an entire chapter in the Bible. And in this chapter... Things go from Judah being, you know, a bad guy to just being downright creepy. I mean, it's really weird. Now, let me back up just a second because I, I want us to really capture this. Like, we need to get what's going on with Judah. Like, Judah and his brothers, they sell, his, they sell Joseph off into slavery. And it doesn't it just stop there. But then they take Joseph's robe and they dip it in blood, kill an animal, dip it in blood. And then they take this robe back to their dad. And back to Joseph's mom. And they tell a bold-faced lie to their parents. Hey, Joseph is dead. We found this robe. Some animal must have mauled him. He's goner. And, like, we know from the story, if you just read through the rest of Jesus, like, like it tears Jacob apart. Like, it really tears him apart. And we know, especially any mom in here, you can imagine, like, it tears his mom apart. And they live with this life. Judah's idea, the one he influenced everybody to do, sell our brother off, hide it, say that he's dead. He lived with this lie for 20 years. Night after night, missing spot at the dinner table. Joseph's birthday rolls around. He's not there. It's like just pain, right? For his family, for his, his parents. And he just keeps the lie going. That's Judah. And then... Chapter 38, where we read, and I'm not going to read this whole chapter to you because um, this is a chapter in the Bible that's like you don't even feel comfortable talking about in church, which is like it feels kind of weird. Like, why don't you talk about a certain thing in, of the Bible in church? But you read it, and then you see if you want to stand up in front of everybody here and, and, and share that story. You, you just do that. You go home, you read. It's very interesting. It'll make for a good read. But there are parts of this that I'm just going to run through. Okay, so here's, here's the story. Chapter 38, Genesis. Judah decides he's going to, he's grown up. He's, he's going to head out on his own. He goes and he ends up getting married to this Canaanite woman, which is strictly forbidden for, for his uh, people to marry Canaanite. And so he, but he does that anyways. And he gets married to a Canaanite woman. They end up having three kids. Chapter 38 moves pretty fast. So you, you get, see him leave the home, get married. And the next thing that it says is that his three kids are now grown. And one of them's old enough to get married, his son, Ur. And so his son, Ur, takes a wife, her name is Tamar. 
and Tamar and Ur are married. And in the very next line that we see, and there's not a lot of detail given here, and I kind of wish there was, but it, apparently Ur does something really bad and God kills him. This is like Ur was wicked before God, and so God puts him to death. That's all we have. That's all the information we have on that. So by Ur, now Tamar is a widow. And in that culture, this gets a little weird, but it was culturally acceptable. In fact, it was actually the best cultural practice of that day was that the widowed wife would then begin of, of, a, of a dead husband, that that husband's brother would actually take that widow into the family and become and, and take her in as either as a wife or something like that so that he can have... Um, raise kids or, or help her have kids so that those kids, especially his sons, would then take care of her as she grows older. Because in that culture, a widow with no kids to look out for her was to be an incredible vulnerable state, to be a very marginalized part of society, to be in a really bad spot where they're vulnerable and, and, and impoverished. It's, it's a really bad deal. So cultural practice, good cultural practice that day was the brother-in-law to take in the, 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 the widowed wife of, of their brother. And so Onan, uh, Judah's second son, does that. Actually, Judah says to Onan, you need to take Tamar in. And so Onan then uh, begins to have sex with Tamar. Think, but Tamar thinking this is to help her have a, a child, a son. That's gonna take, but Onan, uh, you can read the details, has no desire to see that happen. And what he does is he's evil in the sight of God, but he makes sure he uses Tamar, but he does not make sure that Tamar is going to have a kid. And God kills Onan. Because what he was doing was wicked in the eyes of God. So you got two dead sons now, and you still have Tamar, who's a widow, again. So Judah, go, instead of going to his third son and saying, okay, now you take in, Judah, take in Tamar, instead, this is what happens. In verse uh, Genesis 38, verse 11, it says this, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my, his third son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So at this point in time, Judah just says to, to Tamar, Hey, like, I don't know why, why all my sons are dying, but it seems like they're connected to you and then they die. And so I got a third son, but I don't really want her. I don't want him to marry you yet. So why don't you just go back home? Go back home and let your, da- your father take care of you. And he promises her that when my third son's old enough, then y'all get married. But we see in the passage that that ends up not being like that's that's just a lie. That Judah, again, is the deceiver. He'd been lying to his parents all those years about his, Joseph's death, and now he lies to Tamar. He says, I'm, gonna, I'm not, I'm, he promises to take care of her, but then he has no desire to do so. And so Tamar is in this really bad spot. Uh, widow, no one to take care of her. Well, the story continues, and Judah, uh, uh, his wife dies. And so now he goes through a time of mourning, and he's a, a single old guy, and he, uh, he's going by the city gate, and Tamar, knowing what's going on with Judah, says, you know what, I'm a, basically I'm going to trick him. And so Tamar, knowing that Judah has no desire to take care of him, even though it's his responsibility, I mean take care of her, even though it's his responsibility, she dresses up like a prostitute. She covers her face, and she goes to the city gate, and when Judah sees her there, he solicits her. 
And she says, okay. And Judah says, well, how much is it going to cost me? And she says, a goat. And I guess a goat was the going rate for that kind of activity. <laughs> and Judah doesn't know that this is Tamar, his daughter-in-law. He just thinks that it's a, it's a prostitute. And so he ends up uh, saying, okay, I don't have a goat. But uh, so Tamar says, well, he didn't have a goat with him at that time. So Tamar said, well, I'll take, I'll take your signet ring and your cord and your staff. And the signet ring is probably the closest that they got in that, in that culture to it, an ID. Like this was what they used to say, like, this is from me. So she's a, it's a good thing for her to take. So she takes that and takes the staff, which is a sign of his strength. And, and, uh, and then they have sex. Judah, with, from whom the Savior was descended from, has sex with his daughter-in-law. And then to make things even more creepy, she conceives with twins. Of course, he doesn't know that right away. And so they do that, and he's on his way, and he gets his servant and says, Hey, uh, there's this girl. Uh, don't, a- don't, don't ask me about it, but could you bring her a goat? And so the servant goes, and he's trying to find this girl to give the goat to, and he can't find her anywhere. And so he comes back and, and uh, says, to Jake, uh, says to Judah, like, I, c- I couldn't find her. And he's like, well, quit looking for her because that, everyone's just going to laugh at me because if I'm walking around saying, hey, did y'all see the girl I owe a goat to? Then it's like, everyone's going to know. So like, just let her have my stuff. And then he just kind of moves on. And the next, part of the, the next part of the story is this. In uh, verse 24, of chapter 38, it says this. It says, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by her, by her uh, immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. What a guy. What a guy. It's really wild, like the contrast of this, like just to go back, like this is now you're pr- probably beginning to see like when Matthew writes and father of you know, Jacob, father of Judah and his brothers, why the original audience would have said that and thought, whoa, wait a second. That doesn't make sense with my worldview. Like why, why from Judah, not Joseph, like in, in, in like right next to each other in the Bible. Like, guys, y'all got to read the Bible. It's fascinating. But in chapter 38, this is the story of Judah. Chapter 39 goes back to Joseph. And what we see in chapter 39, perhaps y'all are familiar with it, is the story of, uh, of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And so, like, that part of the story, like, Joseph gets sold to slavery. He gets sold to this guy named Potiphar. But he, like, excels under Potiphar's uh, instruction or, I mean, under his uh, whatever his job for Potiphar, he excels. So Potiphar keeps promoting him, basically. And Potiphar's wife falls for Joseph and begins to solicit Joseph to have sex with her. But he won't have anything of it. Joseph, incredible integrity, incredible purity, the holiness. Like, he flees from this, from this woman. And we find out later that he, like, gets thrown in jail as a result of not want, having sex with this girl. Like, that's Joseph, Right next to chapter 38, chapter 39, Judah sex with his daughter-in-law. Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. Why? Why Judah? Why draw, Matthew, why draw attention to this story? You don't unless this is actually illustrating the point of the story. 
See, if, if God only comes to those who d- deserve it, who are righteous on their own accord, if that's who God draws near to, then it makes sense for God to come from the line of Joseph. But if God's acceptance is not based on what we do, but what he has done for us, then it makes sense that God would illustrate that by coming from the line of Judah. Judah says, burn her. Thankfully, Tamar is smart and says this, says that she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong. I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. So I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Basically, she's about to be brought out to be burned. She sends a messenger along that has, like, I'm sure he has no idea. I was like, hey, Judah, I don't know what this means, but like, she gave me these things and said that this is the father. And Judah's like, oh, halt on the burning. <laughs> don't do that anymore. It's a bad idea. Carry it away. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. See, Tamar has two sons, his twins, Perez and, uh, Ta- and Zerah. And then the next line, Perez, the father of Hezron. Now, here's what's crazy. Not just Judah, but Judah through Tamar. Judah's son, Perez. That's in the genealogy of Jesus. I talk about family skeletons in the closet. I mean, talk, talk about the, uh, the, the family tree's branch that you wish you could just saw off. I mean, this is it. And yet, Matthew pauses. He, he draws attention to this. And again, it only makes sense for him to do that if he's trying to make the point that our hope is not based on what we do for God, but on what God has done for us. And Judah's story isn't over. What we find is that like 20 years later, this big famine, or about 20 years later, this big famine hits the Middle Eastern world and that, that uh, Judah and his, and his family, along with Jacob and all his brothers, are like di- dying of starvation, this incredible famine. So Jacob sends all of his sons, his 12 sons or 11 sons, to Egypt to, to get grain because they've heard that there's a lot of grain there, a lot of food there. And so when they get, they get to Egypt, what, what, who is in charge of the grain? If you're familiar with the story, you know it's Joseph. The Joseph, and I can't go through the whole thing, just read it. It's really great. It's an amazing story. But Joseph has actually been promoted and like through some really crazy trials and stuff. Like he ended up like being made the second in command of all of Egypt. And he had foreseen the coming famine and he had given the instruction to Pharaoh. Here's what we need to do to, to prepare and make sure that we don't all starve to death. And then for us to continue to accumulate wealth, like this is the plan. So they enact his plan and, and Pharaoh puts Joseph over all of it. And so Joseph is the one who divvies out and decides who gets grain and who does it. And one day his 11 brothers who he hasn't seen in 20 years. And the last time that he did see them, it was while they were eating and trying to decide if they were going to sell him to slavery and then saying goodbye to him as he walks off. Like those, those guys, they come before him and there's this, 
great interplay where Joseph is just like just he just torn up about it, but he gives him incredible grace. And through this kind of exchange of them coming once and then sending him back and then coming again, you got to read all that. There comes to a point where Joseph decides he's going to let them know who he is. And his brothers, who at that point were actually bowed down before him because they're fearing for his li- their life because of something that Joseph has tricked them with. Joseph, in one of, probably one of the most amazing excerpts of all of literature, in all, all literature anywhere, Joseph tells his brothers who he is. And like in, your, in that moment, like put yourself in Jesus' shoes. Like you're face down. Your brother, who, like you decided to, to sell to slavery who has now the power over life and death, like he could choose to kill these guys. And Judah's thinking, like, if I was in Joseph's shoes, I know what I'd do. I'd, I'd chop off all of our heads. I mean, we'd be done. And instead, Joseph gives them grace. Joseph says, I'm going to take care of you and your families in fact, come, come to Egypt. I'm going to take care of all of y'all. I'm going to make sure that y'all have plenty. Later on, he says to his brothers, hey, you don't have to fear what I'm going to do for you because this is what I'm certain of, that God was behind all of this and that he orchestrated this so that I could be in a position to save many. Like Joseph is this incredible guy. He's an amazing Christ-like character in the Old Testament. God chooses Judah, not Joseph. I think Matthew underscores that little snippet of history in his genealogy because on that day, on his face, Judah is a picture of you and me. Isn't he? That he's the picture of a person who deserves one thing and got the other. Because he is the very picture of a person who is in the process of learning that God's grace is even available to people who never before made themselves available to God. See, Judah never broke. He never confessed. He never apologized. Like he, he never, like, he, like suddenly at the pinnacle of the story, Joseph gives Judah what he never deserved. And God decides to skip Joseph the righteous, and use Judah the unrighteous to bring his son into the world. That's remarkable, isn't it? Guys, if you're like me, every day, there's a part of you that just functions out of this idea that God's acceptance, that my relationship with God is dependent on what I do for him. And that if I've messed up, or if I haven't thought about him enough, or I haven't lived for him enough, or I haven't, you know, whatever it is, then we're distant. Like, we're, he doesn't have anything to do with me. But if I could just start doing the right stuff, then I, could, then I could get a good enough position to come before him. Every day, something in me goes to that kind of thinking. Because Judah teaches us that that's not how God operates. That God's acceptance on us is not, is not 
based on what we do for God, but on what God has done for us. God's acceptance of you is based not on what you do for God, but on what God has done for you. Always. That's how God operates. That's how God operated 35,000 years ago when Judah was on his face before Joseph. That's how God operates now because of what Jesus has done for us. And that is amazing. If you if you got a secret, Judah has secrets. If you've got a secret you've never told, you've been hanging on to all your life, it's been gnawing at you. If you've messed up, you've hurt people. Something you've said that can't go unsaid, something you've done that can't go undone. If you're living with the, the pain of your past and what you've done, as I have good news for you. It's Christmas. I have good news. God has sent his son into the world. Not because you have done something to deserve it, but because you had, could do nothing to deserve it. And yet God doesn't act based on what you deserve, but he does it because you don't deserve it. He does it because God accepts us from what he has done, not what you have done. And that's good news this Christmas. It's really one other wild part of this story. I don't have time to flesh it out. But another thing that we carry with us, guys, is that we carry with us this burden sometimes of that if we don't do the right thing, if we're not faithful to God, then we'll mess up what God really wants to do. We, we, we're afraid that, man, if I, if I don't get things right, then this quote-unquote perfect will of God, sometimes that gets referred to, it gets thrown off. If I'm not faithful, then God can't do his perfect plan. And guys, Judah, Judah says completely opposite to us. Judah, not despite, but through his unfaithfulness, through Tamar, God brings about the one who's going to redeem the entire world. Because God's activity in our world is not based on our faithfulness, but on his faithfulness. See, God's acceptance is not based on what we do, but on what he's done. His activity is not based on what our faithfulness, but his faithfulness. Because we serve a great God and we serve a gracious God. And Jesus, this Christmas and forevermore, is our hope because he illustrates, he makes that point, he comes because of that point. God is gracious. God is great. We have in Jesus great grace. And so we have hope. Life-shaping certainty. That we're accepted by God through Christ. And that God's plan is always in place no matter what happens, no matter how we mess up, because we can never mess up his plan. And man, that brings rest. It also brings freedom. Some of us might quickly say like, well, that's crazy freedom, right? Like, well, if, I, if, if my acceptance by God is not based on anything that I do, and I can't ever mess up God's plan by like being unfaithful, then why ever obey God? <laughs> like if I'm always going to be accepted and God's plan is always going to work out no matter what I do, then does that just mean I get to do whatever I want to do? And guys, 
If you think that way, then you're getting the freedom that's here. But it also reveals something. If what's keeping you obeying God is fear of his rejection or that you're going to mess up his plan, then you're thinking like religious thoughts. That's not what motivates us in the gospel to obey God. Instead, it's just the very fact that we don't have to do those things that motivates us to obey God. That this is who God is. That God would love you so much that you would be accepted by him, not based on what you do, but what he's done for you. That, and it gets to your heart, that moves you to where you don't obey in order to be accepted, as Timothy Keller so well puts, but you obey because you already are. If that's God, then yeah, I want to live for him because I love him in response to his incredible love for me. If I can't mess up God's plan, then that means he's great. That means he's in control of all things. That means that he's powerful. So if if he says to do something, then why not do it? Because he's amazing. And compelled out of the hope that we have in Christ, the love of God, the grace of God, the greatness of God, we are moved to love God and serve God. This Christmas season, I pray that that would be what moves us to live for him.